We'll take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus 8. We are going to look at the consecration or the ordaining um, of the priest. And this is a fascinating passage because it takes the, seven, the previous seven chapters now that we've studied on all the different sacrifices, all the ways that God had made, all the different uh, pictures that he has laid out to, to how to have a reconciled life with him. And he's going to apply it now to the priesthood so that they'll be able to minister it to the people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in the word tonight. We thank you that we can precede it with singing truth that goes right down through the ages. Because your truth doesn't change. It doesn't have to be updated. It doesn't have to become culturally sensitive. Because it's your truth. And it plunges its way and plows its way through culture after culture. Ideals after ideals cannot stand up against the word of God. And so, Lord, cause us to be a church that rests and trusts on the unchanging word of God. That it is just as sufficient today as it was in the first century. And, Lord, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. A believer priest is cleansed and set apart for eternal service to the king. You'll see over and over the Bible says that this was to be from generation to generation as he gave the instructions of the law to the priest and how to perform the sacrificial duties. This was to continue. And the reason he could say that is because it would come down to the Lord Jesus Christ who would be the final high priest and remains our final high priest and who we trust that, bring, that has brought us into the presence of God. And so as we look at a passage like this, well, I'm going to put a couple of thoughts in your mind so we don't get lost um, in all of this that's happening in here as we go through this, um, that we have a position, and we're called now believer priest. We would say it this way, we are the priesthood of the believers. It's a very important term. Because only the priest could come into the presence of God. Only the priest could go into the Holy of Holies, right? We understand that. But now as New Testament or New Covenant Christians, we now adorn the robes of Christ's righteousness, of, of, of his priestly robes really given to us. And through his finished work, we ourselves can come into the throne of God, not just once a year, but at any time. And so we are the believer priesthood. So... I guess if you're on the golf course, someone can call you father too. Because I get called all the time. Oh, I tell my pastor, oh, father, what can I do? No. <laughs> Let me tell you what that means. And it's a great way to witness to people. That I can share with you right here on the seventh tee box of how you can walk into the presence of God, not needing another man to go for you. Isn't that beautiful? Aren't we so glad that we have this type of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. Now, of course, the papal priesthood of Rome has done nothing but confuse this. And many of you were raised in the Catholic Church and you know what I'm talking about. Well, that papal priesthood that they developed in Rome has nothing in common with the priesthood that God gave to Israel. In fact, they had only muddied up the water. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. All of us are underneath his authority, whether we're an elder or a member or whatever it may be, how we fall into 
make up the body of Christ here, he has the headship, the authority, not the church, and certainly not the priest. But God, God's priests, they, they were designed to serve God first and serve the people, not the people serving the priest. And you can, it isn't hard to examine some of these religions that are out there and go, well, you know it's not of God because it's just opposite of how God designed the, even the Old Testament priesthood. Now, another thing that we see um, that's constantly happened, not only in the charismatic church, but also in the Catholic church, is the word of God supplies everything we need. There is not need of additional information. And of course, the Catholic church believes they have the market on there that God reveals things to the priest and he can now reveal them to others. But yet we see that in the charismatic movement today. Bethel and a million other churches now believe that God is speaking up and above, up and beyond what the Lord has said because there is still special revelation that comes out. Now, I think what's most important as we look at this is God gives a shadow here. There's a, there's a shadow of heavenly transactions that are happening here. It is earthly here. He's all pointing towards the final transaction as Jesus Christ, the great high priest, offers himself. So he's not only the priest, but he's also the sacrifice, and he brings his own blood to the Father. So there's this heavenly shadow of a transaction that's taking place here that we want to see throughout here, and we're going to find nuggets as we go through here to point towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we study the Levitical priesthood, you should worship because you know as a New Testament, a New Covenant Christian, that this is pointing to something greater. So don't get lost um, in all the nuances of this. See Jesus. Now, how many of you laughed when you saw my notes? Come on, let's be honest. I even laughed. These are just short points. It's a very choppy text because he's taking all of the things from, from seven chapters. He's going to apply them to the priesthood. So let's get going. We have a lot to cover here. Number one, the public consecration or ordination of the priesthood. Look at verses 1 to 5, and we'll move quickly through this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and two rams, very important two there, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all of the congregation at the doorway of the tent of the meetings. That's the tabernacle, right? In the courtyard. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. And when the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of the meetings, Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded to do. Now, just as the sacrifices were leading to a greater sacrifice, right? And just as the altar is leading to a greater place of worship, right? And just as the wash basin is leading to a greater cleansing work of the Lord Jesus Christ, so the Levitical priesthood is foreshadowing a greater believer priesthood who have a greater high priest. All of this is foreshadowing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and us, his now believer priest, who have the right to come into his presence. Now, look at verse 2. In verse 2, there's instructions for, these, for the future priesthood to gather all the elements of the sacrifice, right? Get the bulls and two rams and the unleavened bread. Get all this stuff. Bring all these elements of the sacrificial system. And then bring the congregation right to the doorway. It is actually a word for threshold. I'm going to show you that in Psalms 84 here in a minute. 
and bring them here. Because God wants them to see that he's provided a way to be reconciled, though, although temporary, but be reconciled how they can be right with God. And he wants them to see, he wants this nation to watch what he's going to do with this priesthood. And how they must be right with God before they can deal with them. Now in Exodus, we saw the instruction um, in the construction of, of the tabernacle and all its furniture. Remember that? We walked through piece after piece and so forth. All points to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. But now it seems God wants the nation to look over this threshold and see what he's doing. Turn with me uh, just quickly to Psalms 84. I took you to this passage not long ago, but I keep coming back to it because I understand it more now than I ever have. Psalms 84. A Hebrew who truly loved God from his or her heart loved the tabernacle. Not worshipped it, but loved it because it was there where they were able to meet God. They were able to be free from their sins, although temporarily, once a year at least, they could, they could come to God and be reconciled. So they learned to love the tabernacle. Now, of course, later on, as the nation began to fall away, they just did things ritualistically, right? Still have this today in the church. People go to church because, well, that's what you do on Sunday. They're not there to worship. But there were plenty of people who did. In Psalms 84, written by the sons of Korah, would have been those people, right? Now, this isn't the sons that were swallowed up. This is a different group who loved God. Notice this, verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places, O host of the Lord of the host. I mean, they see where he was at. They see the tabernacle with its furnishings, and they, they recognize that God is there among them. Notice verse 2, my soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. Now remember, he's bringing them right to the threshold, right to the door, so they can look into the courts of the Lord. He wants them to see what he's about to do, what he's about to show the nation, and particularly the priesthood. He says, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now what a beautiful statement that is. We did that tonight. I hope you sang because you love the Lord. See, these people had faith in God that he would remove their sin. You have faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ that he has removed your sin. Do you see why we sing? These are Old Testament saints that loved God, didn't they? I, I, we've got to get out of our mind the ritualistic... Um, Lack of worship that sometimes works their way into works its way into our mind when we think about the law. The people who love the law of God loved God. And they were not keeping the law in order to gain something from God. They kept the law because they loved God. And because God made a way that when they fell, when they sinned, that they could come and be right with Him. Now, again, remember, all points towards the Lord Jesus Christ as the final offering. So much in here. Um, that you can read, but drop down to um, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. Look at this. I, I, it's a thousand times better to be with you, God, where you're here. Now again, we have the Holy Spirit. Now we are the temple of God right now, so we have the Holy Spirit dwelling with us. A day with God is always great because he's with us if we'll use that. But here they come and they know he resides there. He said, I would rather stand, look at this, at the threshold of the house of my God, then dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
So now as you turn back to Leviticus 8, you can see that he's brought them, he's brought the nation, and he's going to do this for seven days to the nation. Why he does it for seven days, there's a lot of reasons. But one of them is that this large nation can keep cycling through and look through the gate, look through the gate into the courtyard and see God performing these sacrifices through Moses to separate his people and bring them to a right standing. And here the psalmist says, look, I, I want to stand at your threshold. And see your glory. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. Second point, the cleansing of the priesthood. Look at verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron and his sons come near. He said, then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, come near and wash them in water. Now, God had not only prepared the tabernacle and all its furnishing, but he's here now about to prepare a priesthood whereby the people could gain access through them to himself, Right? Again, this is where so many have stumbled. This was only a shadow of things to come. It wasn't permanent. And yet all the religions that you have to go through their leaders to get to some God, because it's not our God, all got stuck here and stumbled over this. But here God desires the nation to see Moses ceremonially cleanse Aaron and his sons. Make them holy, again, temporarily, and each time they had to do this at some level. But, but here God wants, wants the people to see him do this. And, and Moses was not, not permanently appointed here, right? He's doing this um, uh, as the mediator between God and the priesthood right now. And he's acting in the place of God, but soon he will step aside and the Levitical priest led by Aaron will lead all of this. But he's introducing what God is telling them to do. And so he starts this process of ordination or consecration, and the first step is cleansing. Now, every priest begins with cleansing, if you study the Bible. But notice here that Aaron's sons received the cleansing, but they did not cleanse themselves. Now, I would imagine, I would imagine humanly thinking that this was a bit humbling. You're standing in the courtyard, stripped down at some level, and the nation's parading by the door looking at you as another man's washing you. A bit humbling. And yet, I think that's what God teaches, right? No one comes to God without being humbled. You don't march your way into the presence of God and become a Christian by, well, that's, uh, I thought it was the best thing for me, so I did it. No, we bow the knee. We weep over our sin. When we get saved, we find the, the magnitude of our sin. Um, and then we see the glorious of Christ. That's what happens. Or we see the glorious of Christ, and that helps us see the magnitude of our sin. So it's a humbling thing here. So no one comes to God without being cleansed. And that's a humbling point, isn't it? In Leviticus 16:4, we get an understanding that. This was the first time washing. It was more of an immersion, right? He had washed them completely in that. And then later they would wash their hands and their feet before they came to do sacrifices. And of course, this is similar to the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus loved to use Old Testament principles and point to himself. So when he's at a wedding in Cana in John chapter 4, and when he wants to create all this wine for this wedding, what does he do? He goes and gets the pots that hold the water for the cleansing, and he turns those into new wine. 
I'm going to take your cleansing pots that you think you're, you're righteous because you do this now. You've, you're rejecting me as your Messiah, but I'll take your cleansing pots and I'll make new, something new out of them. I'll make new wine that's better than anything else. He does this all the time. He loves to take those Old Testament principles and point to himself. And then he washes the feet of the disciples in John 13, right? And, and of course, Peter goes, well... <laughs> He goes, Jesus, you can't wash your feet. He goes, well, you don't, if I don't wash your feet, you're not getting in. He goes, oh, then wash all of me. He goes, no, no. You don't need to be washed. You need your feet cleansed from the dust of the world, doesn't he? And so the New Testament, under the New Covenant, we see the cleansing work of what? It's the Holy Spirit that does it, right? T- Titus 3, 3 through 5, somewhere in there, is such a beautiful passage, meaning that there's this regenerating work, this cleansing work of the Spirit of God. At salvation, the Spirit of God washes us with the water of regenerating work, right? We get stripped down by the Spirit of God, and he cleanses us by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ with this regenerating work that only the Spirit can do. And again, we see the whole Godhead involved in our salvation. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, the great passage of what we call marriage is is as great or greater a passage on the church. And he says, as he tells husbands to love their wife as Christ loves them and gave himself up for them, he says, so that he might, he, Jesus, might sanctify her, having cleansed her, having, past tense, heiress, cleansed her by washing the washing of water with the word. So again, all of this is pointing towards our cleansing that God will do through Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit. Third thought, the clothing of the high priest, seven through nine. Back to the text. He put the tunic on them and girded them with a sash and clothed them with a robe and put the ephod on him. And he girded him with an artistic band of of the ephod with which he tied it to him. Then he placed the breastplate on him. And in 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 the breastplate, he put the urim and the thuim. And he also placed the turban on his head and then on the turban and in his front, he placed a golden plate, the holy crown, just as the Lord had commanded him. So now he begins to dress him again. And time fails me to go through every piece, but believe me, every one of these pieces point to the Lord Jesus Christ, but you can see what's happening. This is all explained in Exodus 20, how these things were made. God gave the law to Moses there, and immediately these things began to be made by those who were gifted, and the Spirit fell upon to create these things here, this wardrobe. But the tunic was woven, woven there, tells us in Exodus 28, a fine linen thread. The sash was this broad, broad woven band that, uh, band that tightly fit around the midsection of the high priest. The robe was blue, and it was seamless. Hmm. Remember, Jesus had a seamless garment, didn't he? And they didn't want to tear it. Isn't that interesting? He's our high priest in every way, brothers and sisters. The robe was blue and seamless with bells and small decorative pomegranates around the bottom of it. The ephod was essentially an ornament, apron-like garment that hung over him, and it was made of blue and gold and purple and scarlet thread. And the breastplate was made up also of blue and gold and purple and scarlet threads and thread and was attached to the ephod with these gold chains. On the breastplate, there were four rows of three gems, making up 12 tribes of Israel. And as the high priest wore this breastplate, he would bear the names of the, 
of the tribes of Israel, the sons of, of Israel, next to his heart. The Urim and the Thuim, they seem to be a pair of stones. They're, they're a very tricky thing. I started digging on that, and I'll get more into it later, because Numbers in Deuteronomy tells us that they were used to determine the will of God, and they too were kept close to the heart of the priest. This turban's interesting. It was made with linen, um, soft, woven linen. But more important than the turban was this gold plate. Notice that in the text was attached to the front of it. In the inscription, it said, Holy to the Lord, set apart for God, is the idea there. And of course, when we see our resurrected Lord, we see this um, dressing of clothing, his tomb clothing, and then his head clothing separated from that. Certainly, our Lord was holy to him. After being cleansed, the priest had to be clothed. Um, and notice he's not clothed in his own clothing, right? He's clothed in these garments given by God. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't put back on his old stuff. When he's cleansed, he's, 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 he's now dressed with a garment that's not his own. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Christ dresses his children in his wardrobe, in his righteousness. We, like the ancient priest of Israel, must be clothed in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Revelation 3, 5, we have a picture of what's to come. He said, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Those who overcome sin by putting their faith in Jesus Christ alone, they ha we have garments waiting for us that reflect the righteousness that we now bear. These spiritual garments are freely given to us through the imputation of righteousness of Jesus Christ. They're, they're, look, they are to be received, think about this, and worn by faith. Worn by faith. Can you imagine Moses explaining to Aaron, we're going to put these garments on you. This is what God has said. And then we're going to walk you into his presence. And you're going to stand there before him. What an amazing thing. These spiritual garments are freely given to us and we must wear them for the glory of the Lord. Otherwise, we don't know him. You're either dressed in the righteousness of Christ or you're not. One of the two. <laughs> it, that simply means you're either saved or you're not. And we see this display even in this high priest dress of Aaron. Now, notice there was no expense to the, to the priest. He, he did not pay or buy these priestly clothings. He didn't labor to design them. They were not his design. They were simply given to him, and he was to wear them. I love that. Fun to think about that stuff, isn't it? I did not design my salvation. I didn't go out and buy it. I didn't gain it through church attendance or offering or anything else or born into it. My bloodlines didn't inherit that. They were a gift. It was somebody else provided it for me. And we know that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we wear Christ's robes. And we stand alone in Him who provided the cost. <laughs> he provided the cost for us to stand dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Fourth, the anointing of the priesthood. Look at verses 10 through 13. Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all of its 
utensils and the basin and its, uh, and its stand to consecrate them. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Next, Moses had Aaron's sons come near and clothe them with tunics and girded them with sashes and, cape, uh, and bound caps uh, on them just as the Lord had commanded him. Well, first, this oil is sprinkled over the tabernacle and all of its furnishing that we see the instructions again back in Exodus that they were to make and get done for this event. And to show that they were specifically set apart for the service of the Lord, they were not common things. God had them anoint again all of these, all of these things, including the entire tabernacle and all of its furnish. But notice, isn't it interesting that the altar singled out? Look at that in... in um, Verse 11, the altar singled out and, and really singled out for its holiness. It's anointed seven times, a number, a Hebrew number that often reflects perfection. And it's because the altar was a place where innocent lives were given for another. Innocent lives were given for another. This is where one could be holy again before God, although temporarily you could be right with God here at this altar. Next, the oil was poured on Aaron's head. You see that there. He, he singles him out to be the high priest. He is the one who can come into the presence of God. And on the tabernacle and on the furnishing, the oil was sprinkled. But on Aaron, it was poured out. Right? And I think that's important to understand that. God was exalting this high priestly position even over the tabernacle and all of its things. He was, he was highlighting this high priest who would come into his presence. This was not missed by the nation. They rejoiced over this. Psalms 133, you know this verse 1 and 2. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now listen to this. Unity is the, is the context here is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edges of his robe. See, remember, God has the nation watching all of this. They don't forget this stuff. The ones who walk with God see this as a beautiful thing. And they see that the high priest can bring unity to the lost, <laughs> to the hurting, to those who have sinned. This high priest can bring unity in a way no one else can. And again, Aaron's demonstration here, what Moses is doing to him is pointing forward to one who brings ultimate unity, unity eternal unity. This oil here, this anointing oil, set Aaron apart. Set him apart. You are the one who will come into my presence on behalf of my people. Once the tabernacle and the furnishings were sprinkled with oil, there were no longer a tent. And I think this is what the Lord is saying. This is where I'm going to meet with you. So it's, it's identifying a certain place. It's, it's consecrated for me. I'm going to meet you here. Sometimes we build new buildings in Christianity. And, and though we're not trying to reproduce this, we do see that as a place 
that God gives us. This is just brick and mortar here, but we are very grateful for this. God meets us regularly as a congregation that comes together. We don't leave and leave him here. He comes with us by his spirit. But listen, it is very important to God when we congregate in his place. And so we thank the Lord for buildings, knowing that this is a place where God is with us. But here this was in a special place. This is where God was on earth. Think about the God who created everything that they made that tabernacle with. All those parts and pieces and skins and all the bronze and gold and all the things that were built. God created all of that, put it on earth in a place that he wanted, he wanted to be ordained and consecrated so he could come and be with sinful men. What a great, kind God. Study your Old Testament and see the kindness of God. To many of us, we're raised seeing a very cold Old Testament. We miss the beauty of God because we miss that it was pointing to Jesus. It was pointing to a God who loves sinners. And he wants to make a way for sinners to have a relationship with him. And so we miss that sometimes. And, and so the Old Testament becomes cold to us. Just like Aaron, every believer now has an anointing. Isn't that true? God has anointed you. The anointing oils really in so many ways represent the work of the Holy Spirit. We receive the Spirit at salvation. We're anointed with Him, with the, with the oil of the Spirit in a sense, meaning it runs down, it fills us, it covers us at the time of salvation and never leaves us, marks us forever as God's anointed. and causes us to walk by faith and continually to come to God, right to his throne room. 1 John chapter 2, 19-20. Listen to these words. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. So it's text telling us why people all of a sudden abandoned the faith. Because the Bible says they never were saved. That's why. But then he goes on to tell us what, what really happens. They, they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. And then listen to this, but you. That's a believer right here. I'm in 1 John 2.20 now. But you have the anointing from the Holy One. And you all know it. <laughs> I mean, I, I just thought about that. I, I mean, the oil of God... Setting me apart at salvation in 1970 drizzled down over me as the Spirit of God identified me. Hebrew, uh, Ephesians 1 says, sealed us, guaranteed our salvation. Oh, brothers and sisters, pastors that preach are the word are not the only ones anointed. Every believer is anointed. Anointed by the Lord. And Hebrews 6, 4, 16 says that this is why we can draw near with what? Confidence, thank you. Because you've been anointed, the Spirit of God has come to so you. You have confidence to come right into the throne of grace. You don't need me to pray for you. You don't need me to do something for you. You're a priest. Walk into the presence of God. Talk to Him. Tell Him you're, you're not right with Him. Tell Him you want to be right with Him. Go into his, into his throne room often when you are right with him and praise him and worship him. Don't use his throne room as some box for penance. Love him and worship him. If 
5, the sacrifice of the sin of the sins of the priesthood, the sacrifice of the sins of the priesthood, 14 through 17. I've got to get moving here. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the heads of the uh, head of the bull of the sin offering. Next, Moses slaughtered it and took the blood with his fingers and put some of it around the horns of the altar and purified the altar. And then he poured out the rest of the blood around the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. He also took all the fat and all the entrails and the lobes uh, of liver and the ki- liver and the kidney, two kidneys and their fat. And Moses offered it up and smoked to the altar. Remember, he's this is all repeating what, how they learned how to offer these sacrifices to God. He's showing it to them as he'd explained it to them in the previous chapters, verse 17. But the bull and the hide and its flesh and its refuge, he burned in fire outside the camp just as the Lord had commanded him. So now the cleansing at the door of the tabernacle um, was only um, symbolic for the cleansing of sin. So, so now there, is, there has to be something punished, right? So symbolically they're cleansed, but something has to be punished for them. Something has to die for them. And this is where this bull comes in. And notice that the hands of Aaron and his son are laid on the head of this bull. They're symbolically transferring their sins. But you remember when we spoke about this earlier in the book of Leviticus, the Hebrew word is not just lightly putting your hand on it. Now, if you would have put your hand on one of my bulls, you better be running. Uh, but apparently, it's very much not docile. Remember, the Hebrew word was you leaned your hand on it with all your weight. Wasn't Samuel, you know, sorry, Jesus. I shouldn't have done that. Your whole life is riding on the fact that this bull is going to be a substitute for your wickedness. So there's a leaning here. There's a pressing hard. It signifies that this victim is going to carry my load, my sinful burden, and he's going to be an acceptable substitution for me, and I am banking on it. How much are you leaning on Jesus that way? See, if we lean on him that way, we sing that way. We live that way. I think too often, oh, brothers and sisters, we lightly lean on Jesus. Not as bad as another guy. Well, you know, you know who I live with, how difficult that is. (laughs) Blame shift, blame shift, blame shift, light hand on Jesus. Boy, I tell you, the older I get, I hope with you, the more I lean upon the finished work of Jesus Christ with all my weight. Notice, I think there's a mixture of sadness and joy here. There's a sadness of sin, right? This innocent animal, this bull hasn't done anything wrong. It's sad, I mean... I'm thinking from a ranching perspective. <laughs> that things are expensive. And this thing's got to die because I can't obey God. And so there's a sadness, but then on the other end, there's an intertwined joy that God would provide this suitable sacrifice, this acceptable sacrifice, albeit temporarily. There's a joy that I can be right with God, I can be reconciled. And here the nation's watching as Aaron and his sons lean on this bull for the forgiveness of their sins. 
Notice the altar also was sanctified with blood. It's sanctified with the blood of the sin offering. The best animal was burned up before them in the Lord. There wasn't anything given to the priest. Everything was burned completely, and what was left was burned outside the camp. The sin offering recognized that the worshiper failed to give their best to the God, so that animal will give its best. You see that? Boy, you want to try to go to heaven on your best stuff? <laughs> Ooh, hell's flames wait, await you. See, we come with Jesus Christ's best stuff, right? He's the perfect one. He's the fat of the beautiful offering. He's the sweet aroma of everything being sacrificed on our behalf. That's what we lean upon. And this sacrifice of an innocent animal should motivate us to give our best, isn't it? We're thankful that Jesus did everything for salvation, right? But now we work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it's God both who works and wills within us. And so we learn now from that great work, that great finished work that Jesus has done, now we start to live for him. And that's, that's the idea here. I mean, the altar, the Hebrew word for the altar was translated for many years, the killing place. It was called the killing place. How much more is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ the killing place of the almighty Son of God who came to be the perfect sacrifice for us? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all of us. Therefore all died, we died with Jesus. But then it says this, and this is really important. I, I, when, when I look at these sacrifices, it isn't just death, it's life from death. Because that, that animal died in my place, now I have the opportunity to walk back out the gates of the tabernacle and now live for my God who offered a way for me to have a relationship with me. So this death brings life, new life daily, right? You see where I'm going with this? The next verse in verse 15 says this, and he died for all, and now listen to this, so that. Here's the reason. That they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So here, a Hebrew who really loved God, who believed that God would ultimately and finally deliver them from their sins, they saw this practice, this sacrificial system, as a way that not only took their sin away, and they didn't walk away and go, oh, good, I'm, I'm good for another year. They said, no, I want to live now because that one died for me. And a godly Hebrew, man or woman, would live for the Lord. And that's where those psalms come from. That's where those, those men and women who, who sang to God, I would imagine there was singing in the courtyard. I would imagine as you walked out, you were full of praise, knowing you were forgiven. Oh, isn't beautiful when you're around new believers and baptisms, aren't you? They're so excited. They're so grateful. See, that's what happened repeatedly. So not just a life for a life, but a life to live a life. It's a big difference, isn't it? We don't look at Jesus as a dead Jesus. We certainly look at his living, but his living causes us to live. That's a beautiful thing. Six, the, the sacrifice of the burnt offering for the priesthood, verses 18 through 21. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering 
And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Moses slaughtered it and sprinkled the blood around the altar. And when he had cut the ram into two pieces, Moses offered up the head and the piece and the pieces in the suet in smoke. And after he had washed the entrails and the legs with water, Moses offered them up up the whole ram in smoke on the altar, and it was burned. And it was burned offering for a soothing aroma. And it was offered by a fire to the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded. Moses, you keep hearing this, just as the Lord commanded, just as the Lord commanded, they are obeying. So the burnt offering was the most highlighted and significant of all sacrifice, because that's the basis for all the other sacrifices, right? So it was, a, it was a highlighted offering. But here in Leviticus 8, the priest, the priest's sin offering had to come first because of their personal sinfulness and, and their need for forgiveness. So they had to go through this this sin offering before they could offer the burnt offering because they, they need it to be right with God. So then the altar was consecrated in order to receive this just payment and then burn the offering. Um, the burnt offering could be applied to the ministering priest. So there was, he's, he's, he's changing things up in a sense for the priesthood so they can be right, so they can offer these offerings for the nation. But how... Think about this. How is the sin offering applied to the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we, how do we make that connection? How does, how does Jesus become the sin offering? A lot of people have stumbled over this, but the great messianic passages help us understand. Listen to some of these. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely our griefs he himself bore. So this is how he does it. He takes our sin upon himself. And listen to this very carefully. As though he committed our sins, though he's innocent. So I, the writer in Isaiah says this he, he surely, surely our griefs himself he bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. We did not see what he was doing, that he was bearing our sins, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Our chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and his scourging, by his scourging, we are healed. So there's this substitutionary death, and we don't even appreciate it. I mean, that verse doesn't tell that they don't even appreciate it. It says, we ourselves esteemed him stricken. They walked by the cross of Jesus and said, that man's a sinner. And yet the Bible was saying he was stepping in and taking our sin like he himself had committed it because the wages of sin is death. And so he, he takes them on. And then think about some of the other great messianic psalms. Psalms chapter 40, verse 12. Listen to this as though Jesus is saying this as he bears our sin. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me. Remember, he's bearing our sin. This is what he would have felt so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed in me. Our Lord suffered immensely on the cross, not from the physical, uh, as bad as that was, it was the bearing of our sins. It was all pointing to this, this, this bull and these rams that died, this was not a good way to go. <laughs> Your throat slit. You're bled out, but you're still alive. You begin to thrash as you die. I mean, God was demonstrating the bearing of the weight of sin. One more, Psalms 38, 1 through 4. 
Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath. Can you hear our Lord? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you feel the weight of our sin upon the Savior? And the chastisement of me, not with, don't chastise me in the burning anger, for your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of sin. My iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. This is the Lord crying out in his humanity as he carries the weight of sin. It's astounding, isn't it? So you can't look at the sacrificial system any way now as a Christian, any other way than this is pointing to Jesus. He carries our burden. And then the great passage in 2 Corinthians 5.21 wraps us all together with our new covenant, new, new, New Testament position that we're in. It says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He he judged him like he committed Scott's sins. So that, because we don't want to stop there, right? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I have worshipped as I studied these sacrifices because my mind sees the death and reconcil- the reconciliation work of God, Jesus Christ, the, the substitutionary work of Christ. I keep seeing that over and over and it causes me to be overwhelmed. Seven, the ceremony of the priestly consecration, 22 through 44. And then he presented the second ram, the ram of ordination or consecration. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And Moses slaughtered it and took some of its blood and put it on the lobes of Aaron's right ear and on the thumbs of his right hand and on his big toes of the right foot. And then also Aaron's sons came near. And Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ear and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toe of their right foot. And then Moses sprinkled the rest of the blood around the altar. Normally, in this point, there would be a trespass offering or a guilt offering that would be brought according to chapters 5 and 6 of Leviticus. But in the case of the priest, the special ram here now, a special ram is brought out. A ram of consecration, a ram of of ordination becomes this priestly trespass guilt offering here. And another offering is missing here too. And I want to tell you that that's the peace offering. Because think about this, this burn offering and this sin offering and this special ram um, trespass guilt offering certainly shows that the priests who were remaining in this sanctuary, remaining in this courtyard, had to be at right with God, had to be at peace with him. And he was showing these men who are covered with my blood are at peace with me. So if they were not at peace with God, they would have been driven out. And we're going to see in chapter 10, two men who were not at peace with God and what he does with them. However, as you look at verse 23 and 24, there's some quite dramatic things that happen here. Notice that Moses consecrates the priest in a really unique way. And what I think he's doing here is he's affirming that these priests, God wants their whole person. He wants everything. He wants them completely dedicated to the Lord. And God desires all their strength, all their faculties to be consecrated to him. And so the Lord has Moses touch the blood on the right ear, on the right hand, and on the right foot. As though he was saying, I, the Lord, have claimed you, your whole person, body and soul, to be used for my service. 
He's working his way down the side, the side of strength, the ear, the hand, the foot, and so forth. From head to toe, these priests were marked by blood. Ooh, that's good, isn't it? Man, there's no part of us that God has not redeemed. You need to know that and believe that. And he's, he's now empowered us through his, through his work to serve him. And so we can hear the whisper of the word of God. The blood of Christ has opened our ears to hear even God's word. Now when he speaks to us, the world can't hear this. If they heard a message, if they're tuned in right now, can you imagine what they're trying to figure out what we're talking about? Not those who have been marked. Our ears now are open. <laughs> we can hear. We're active. Our, our right hand now knows to obey the Lord and walk with him. We're empowered by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his blood that covered our sins, our feet now have the right path. He set us on the right path. Think about that. The blood of Christ has set me on the right path. Versus what? The wrong path? There's two, right? There's a narrow one and a wide one. One leads to heaven, one leads to hell. The blood of Christ has set my feet, set your feet, believer priest, on the path to heaven. All this points towards the believer priest who is set apart from God, set apart for him. You fully belong to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you're a true believer, you belong to him. Jesus gave everything, didn't he? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, he says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, him and God are having this conversation. There's nobody else listening up there. This has got to be Christ and the Father and the Spirit. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus not only brought his sinless perfection, his spirit and being, but he had a body too. And he gave it all, all of it, for our salvation. Christian, you, the believer priest, God wants every bit of you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ, completely enveloped. Don't leave a toe out. <laughs> Let a crisis covered us all from head to toe. Don't you know that your body has been bought by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians 6.20. 8, the wave offering, 25 through 29. He took the fat and the fat of the tail and all the fat that was in the entrails and the lobe of the livers and the two kidneys and their fat on the thigh. From the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took an unleavened cakes and one cake of bread mixed with oil and water and placed them in the portions of the fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these things in the hand of Aaron and on the hands of the sons and presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. And then Moses took them from their hands and offered them up in smoke and an offering with a burnt offering. And they were an ordination offering of soothing aroma. And it was an offering by fire to the Lord. Verse 29, and Moses took the breast and presented it as a wave offering before the Lord. And it was Moses' portion uh, and... It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, now notice Moses takes all this fat, right, from the tail and the entrails and all that beautiful fat that I've told you about many a times. And, and that, that same ram, this special ram that died and where the blood was put on the ear and the hand and the foot and so forth, now he takes that, pieces of that, 
And he takes it and places it with this unleavened bread, this bread free of leaven, which would, again, represent free of sin. And they waved that to the God before him. And he put it in the hands of Aaron and his sons. And they waved it and said, you, we submit to you. We're coming your way. You're sovereign over all things. And um, some of the writings tell us they waved it east to west and north to south to say, God, you're in control of all things. And so then these portions were burned completely showing the devotion of everything to the one who could forgive sins. And even the portions that would later belong to the priests for their own nourishment in this consecration ceremony, it would have been inappropriate for them to eat it, and so they burned everything to the Lord. They gave it all as those who would lead the nation spiritually. And so there's lessons there for even those who lead. We give it all for the Lord, and we trust Him for the rest. Nine, the oil and blood sprinkled on the priestly garments. Verse 30 So Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron in his garments and his sons in the garments of his sons with him. Now Moses takes a prepared oil and mixes it with the blood of this ram of consecration. And this blood was already accepted, right? And so the oil of verse 12 set man apart, but this mixture of oil and blood set the priesthood apart, set this priest apart for God. Here, when this is done, we see several things. We see the priest consecrate it. We see the actual investment into this office. God's setting them apart. This oil and blood sprinkled on them and their garments again and again here remind them that they now are set apart for God. They've been cleansed, cleansed and they're endowed with the Spirit of God. And this is real important because that oil really is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't forget the Holy Spirit was working greatly in the Old Testament. We now own him. He owns us in a sense. Here in the New Testament, he, he dwells us permanently. But in the Old Testament, he was always identifying the things of God, right? He came along and he identified the things of God. And so the oil often represented that God was identifying these men to lead the nation to repentance, to lead the nation to how they could be reconciled with God. And they were set apart for that. And so we come to the one named Jesus. He's without spot and blemish. There's no washing for him. He has no sin. But he's endowed with a spirit. And even at his baptism there, without a doubt, John the Baptist says, the spirit of God, like a dove, descended upon him and marked him out. It was the greatest of all high priests, right? I mean, that's, that's the spirit of God. That's, that's a triune God saying, there he is. This is the one who can bring you into my presence for eternity. Not just once a year. Not just when you fail. He'll bring you in forever. He's identified. And so this mixture of oil and blood speaks of the work of the Trinity, doesn't it? He's free of unrighteousness and he's abounding in the spirit. And so the Lord is the one who carries us in. Ten, the priesthood fellowship meal with God. I know I'm running out of time. Bear with me. I really want to get through this chapter. Um, Verse 31 and 32. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, boil the flesh of the flesh at the doorway of the tent of meanings. He wants the people to see it. And eat it there together with the bread, which is in the basket of the ordination offering, just as I command it, saying, Aaron and his son shall eat it. The remainder of the flesh and of the bread, you sh- the remainder of the flesh and the bread you shall 
burn in the fire. While the remaining meat portions of the second ram were given to Aaron and his sons. And they're, they're given after God has his portion. And, and after this wave offering is given, they, they have this now. And the priests were to eat this sacrifice. They were to eat of this and in order to show that their offering was accepted by God and they were at peace with God. And God was now showing them how to be reconciled between him. And they were to do it right in the front of the nation. They were to do it the, tor- the doorway, the threshold of the tabernacle. Well, this second ram, after its portions were presented... And burnt offerings, it was given as a sign, really, of spiritual nutrition, right? And physical nutrition for them. Spurgeon commenting on this passage, this particular verse, said this, Let not this distinction be forgotten. The eating of the sacrifice is not intended to give life at this point, for no dead man can eat, but to sustain the life which they now already had. A believing, a believing look at Christ makes you alive, but a spiritual life must be fed and sustained. And so here the Lord has given a demonstration. Yes, I've forgiven you. You now have life, but now take me and live on me. <laughs> Consume me. Take me in. That's what Christ was saying to them. Eat me. <laughs> oh, when he said that in John 6, the disciples, many of the disciples said they walked with him no more. Jesus was talking about life, right? He says, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so that he who eats me, devours me, consumes me, takes me fully in, he also will live because of me. It's life, life, life. Life giving when we're dead, life sustaining life through Jesus Christ. Oh, he keeps us alive. Are you feeding on Jesus Christ? Do you love the preaching and teaching and the study of scriptures of love Christ? Do you love him? I hope, as, even as we're going through this, I don't know how many churches teach you Leviticus anymore, but we're doing it. And I'm amazed. I, 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 I'm loving my Savior more than I ever have teaching through this book. Because it's living illustrations perfected in Jesus Christ. So the believer priest, as a believer priest, have you consumed Christ and are you completely satisfied in him? Or you're looking for another spiritual meal somewhere. This is people who distort the word of God. It's not enough for them. See, Christ has to be enough. And if he is, he's, he brings you at peace with God. And, and now you just de- devour him as the way, the truth, and the life. And he now becomes a source of strength for daily living. And this is what the priests were feeding on. Notice in verse 32, that the remainder of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn with fire. God wants fresh fellowship. If you're running on some past experience and you put everything on that past experience and you are not experiencing Christ daily, that's stale relationship with the Lord. He says, take it out and burn it. I want fresh. I like that. I want it fresh. Are you, do you have a fresh relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you desire fellowship with him that's new and fresh? Do you see his mercies new every morning? Lamentations 3, 23. See, that's fresh with the Lord. Don't don't live on some stale, something that, oh, I had this experience with Jesus one time. You should be having experiences with him in the word every day, brothers and sisters. We are priests in his presence. Last thought here real quickly. Number 11, set the standard 
setting the standard and setting apart the priesthood. Look in 33 through 36. The remainder of the flesh and the bread you shall burn with fire. 33, excuse me. You shall go, you should not go outside the doorway of the tent of meetings for seven days until the day of the period of your ordination is fulfilled for he will ordain you through seven days. And the Lord also has commanded us to do as we have done this day to make atonement on your behalf. And at the doorway of the tent of meetings, moreover, you shall remain day and night for seven days and keep charge of the Lord so that you will not die. For I have... For so I have been commanded. Thus Aaron and his sons did all the things the Lord had commanded through Moses. I think this is beautiful. You notice in verse 35 that it seems to indicate that they stayed there for the next seven days and they repeated the same sacrificial system over and over and they pondered it. There's a new generation going to be coming up and every one of these generations as we study the the Old Testament, they would do this seven-day consecration period. And seven again is that Hebrew number for perfection often. He said, for he will ordain or consecrate you through these seven days. The immediate context points to Moses just that the overall context points that God was who does the work here in setting apart these guys. He's setting them apart for the ministry of reconciliation. For without God, everything just becomes this empty ceremony. So God's in this seven-day process as they're repeating this over and over as the nation's parading by. J.P. Morgan on this, um, I wanted to read to understand more of this. And J.P. Morgan added this. He said, this is a Um, complicated, long, repetitive, and messy ceremony. God still has his own consecration and preparation process today for his servants. Nothing is to be omitted through Jehovah's commands. His priests, I'm thinking about this, his priests must be washed, robed, anointed, sustained, separated, all in his way, or they cannot exercise the function in his service. To neglect anything is to invalidate the ministry. And so I love that term. J.P. Morgan said this, the priest today, us, the believer priest, we must be washed, we must be robed, we must be anointed, we must be sustained, we must be separated, and we must come his way. And he did it seven days over and over and over and over to grind into them. There is a way God wants you to come one way. After these seven days, the priests would be dedicated to the Lord. And I'll tell you what, they either loved the Lord or they hated him after this. And that's what happens. Young people come to church and they do really good underneath their parents. And then they hang on during their college years or they drift away. And pretty soon they either hate the things of the Lord or they love the things of the Lord. They either have their own faith or they have their parents' faith which can't save them. God wants us to come to him again and again see his great work. Verse 34, he says, To make atonement on your behalf... Through the reception of these sacrifices over these seven days, this was done to emphasize again and again that these men are sinners, they're fallible, but I have a way to redeem. And he would lead them into redemption and reconciliation. What an amazing contrast between the sinful lives of the high priest and the perfect life of the great high priest. They had to do this again and again. They had to go through that sin offering over and over, seven days. They had to do it. But the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, I don't have time to go there, that Jesus Christ did not have to go daily offering sacrifices, seven days. He didn't have to do that because he was sinless. And he offered himself up for us. Well, this is a beautiful text. They did this for seven days, and they did it all with the Lord 
had done, asked them to do. I hope you see Christ in it. Am I, am I, am I clear enough in that? Can you see Jesus through this? Um, I sure enjoy teaching this. I'm sorry to hang you just a little bit long, um, but I wanted to get through that text. Father, thank you for this time. Um, wow. To be a priest in the Old Testament, uh, when we first read this, we would go, wow, that's overwhelming. It's a lot of blood, a lot of death. But then there was a lot of joy. We begin to realize they love the courtyards of the Lord. The ones who truly put their faith in God's way, they love the courtyards of the Lord. We, how much greater do we have of the high priest in our life? Here in this New Testament era, this era of the church, we have now this side of the cross a full view of the final reconciliation between God and man. Jesus Christ, perfect sacrifice that brings us into his presence eternally. What a beautiful thing, Lord. May we not go out of here and forget how glorious our Lord is. Thank you for the study of the Old Testament that teaches us the beauty of the New Testament. We give you praise for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.